Good morning. You are listening to KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the World Wide Web at KPOO.com. This is Prison Focus Radio. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. It's going to take people who are willing to fight, not people who want to negotiate with the enemy. Deal with 
Good morning, beautiful people. Thank you for joining me here, Nube Brown, on Prison Focus Radio. We are going to have a good show today. We are going to start with a very familiar uh, voice and name, hopefully, for many of you. London Crowdy will be joining me this morning. And I want to remind you before we get started that um, if you have, we are going to be having a rally this Sunday, March 7th, from 12 to 2 p.m. in front of the 111 Taylor Street facility that is run and owned by Geo Group, the for-profit prison profiteer corporation. And uh, please join us. Again, you can get all that information also by going to the sfbayview.com. We are in solidarity and going to be rallying to free Malik and get Geo out of California. So please join us. Again, uh, that will be March 7th from 12 to 2 p.m. In, at the 111 Taylor Street facility in San Francisco. All right. Also, welcome to Women's History Month. All right. Or sorry, Women's Herstory Month. So uh, you will be hearing a lot from some very powerful voices over these next few weeks uh, here on uh, Prison Focus Radio. And I just want to say, I hope you are doing your best to continue in your self-care, continue in your, uh, your solidarity, this solidarity mo- movement and moment and that you are finding your place to be, to do the work in a way that um, continues to uplift humanity and really see the power that we have of the people. I want to remind you also, please continue if you have not yet, or if you even have, to call the governor at 916-445-2841. The ask is simple demand the release of our elders. This is coming out of the Liberate the Caged Voices, um, the campaign to liberate our caged elders. These are the mostly the men of the California hunger strikes, the ones who organized those, those historic hunger strikes and created the agreement to end hostilities that ended indefinite solitary confinement. Because they won their suit against CDC small r, they have been retaliated against ever since. These are people, these are men, these are family members, these are fathers and sons and uncles, grandfathers, some of them am, who spent decades in solitary confinement. They have been denied parole multiple times. This is an egregious abrogation of people's human and civil rights. These are the people that we love and we care for and we are not going to forget them. Please just call the governor at 916-445-2841. All right, we are going to get started now with London Crowdy. London Crowdy, I want to thank you for joining me this morning. Oh, thank you for having me, Nube. It's always a pleasure. An honor. Yes. Uh, for me, too. Always mutual. So I want to let the listeners know um, if 
you, uh, if you have been listening to Prison Focus Radio over these months, maybe over the past year, you will recognize a London Crowdy um, as someone that we have not only had on the uh, show before, but she and I used to co-host Prison Focus Radio, and for a t- for a time, and it was absolutely wonderful. I really do miss you. But for yeah, those, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then for those, though, that are new uh, to hearing your voice or even knowing who you are, London, I would love for you to give folks um, a little bit of background on who you are, uh, just kind of set the context for our conversation. Sure, absolutely. Um, welcome. Great day, everyone. My name is London Crowdy. Um, I, let's see, I met New Bay about almost a year and a half ago, uh, what connected us is that I am formerly incarcerated. I spent a little bit over eight years in a federal prison, and I came home, and I was welcomed by legal services for prisoners with children, all of us or none, and that's where I met Nube as well as her other colleagues, and we started talking, and Nube invited me to um, come and have this wonderful experience where I learned so much and I had the blessing, the opportunity to come and co-host with her. Um, and since then, I have moved on from legal services for prisoners with children, and I'm now currently at Faith in Action East Bay. Oh, Faith in Action. I love that. Okay. So uh, I would love for you to tell us um, – well, yeah, why don't you just tell us about what's what's going on with you at Faith in Action in East Bay? Sure, uh, I'd love to. So what brought me to Faith in Action East Bay is, you know, honestly just trying to find my footing, still figuring out what I wanted to do. And so I started to uh, have the interest in trying to have a more of a focus on helping folks before they get to prison like how can I tend to the community, be active in the community, and uplift the community? So uh, be like a help with the different diversions that you know and create awareness for folks before they end up in prison. Um, and so at Faith in Action East Bay, they have given me the opportunity to do that. I'm an organizer there, and my area of focus is the Live Free Table which puts a focus on um, creating opportunities, uh, creating that destruction against mass incarceration within the community, whether that's uh, economic help uh, for folks coming back into the community, housing, et cetera, uh, working on build reform uh, within that area as well, and also a place at a table where people feel uh, comfortable or returning citizens, returning back into the community. And I also work in ceasefire, which is a very new experience to me, but uh, ceasefire is a program that's data-driven, and what it is, it's uh, community-centered, and what we do is just that, is try to increase the peace within the community so folks who are uh, at risk of going to the prison, of going to prison or being killed, 
if they're on the police radar, what we do is we try to, as a community, step in before that happens, and we're like, hey, look, what do you need? How can we help? Uh, do you need a place? Do you need a, you know, relocation? Do you need a job? Like, how can we help you to get out of this lifestyle because you matter to us and we don't want you to go to prison or even worse? Wow, that sounds uh, really beautiful. How and how how is that going? Um, honestly, Nube, it has been um, very overwhelming, you know, just to be, you know, I like to be super transparent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, of course, with the pandemic, so many things are pivoting and there's so many fires happening at the same time. And you just can't, it seems like you can never do enough. And not, you know, just in Oakland, all over the country, we have an uptick in violence. And so, for example, uh, since January, uh, Oakland has already had over 20 homicides. Hmm. And, you know, it's just, you know, um, it's it's definitely the work that uh, takes a lot out of you. No, I I I feel you on that, and I appreciate you you. I, I've always loved your honesty and your yes, what you call transparency. You know, you don't you don't try to make it something that it isn't. Um, you know, living here in the Bayview, uh, Hunters Point area, you know, we've had um, just in the few months that I have lived here, we've had um, we've we've had two. Well, there's been quite a few shootings. Um, and very recently, we had um, a, there was a drive-by shooting and someone was killed. All right. Excuse me, folks. I am going to interrupt myself here because I actually, to be honest, I didn't really know how to respond to what London had just shared. It, it brought up so many issues in my mind that I just started blabbing. And I didn't want to subject y'all to that, so I edited it out. Um, and I just wanted to say that, you know, it's it's just heartbreaking and and it's uh, it's painful uh, to see community in pain and in fear um, and to see them grieving. You know, the grieving was public and. I was there. I mean, it's it's a few blocks. It was a few blocks away from me, um, where this this death had occurred. Uh, literally right across from the Bayview. So, anyway, um, I did end up asking London about how the work with uh, Place at the Table and Ceasefire. Uh, worked with each other. Like she said, she is nude with, uh, with Ceasefire as a program with Faith, Faith in Action, uh, but I wanted to give you some context as to why it might sound a little disjointed. Um, okay, here we go. So the Live Free Table, yeah, so there, it's all connected to one another pretty much, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so it's, but it's so much at the same time. So where the ceasefire, what we're trying to do, the part that I focus on in that area right now is making the um, community aware, like, who ceasefire is, 
one, so they can access it, and two, that they know that we're there. So, you know, this is a situation that doesn't just affect the people who are being gunned down by senseless violence, but it also affects the people who live in these neighborhoods, who, you know, who lives in these communities, who doesn't want to feel safe to be able to sit on their porch, walk down the street, have their kids play outside, et cetera, right? We don't overlook that. And so what we do as well is we try to uh, faith in action is our ground focus is um, building leadership. And so what we do is we work with community members. We don't recruit. We don't do any of that. It's like, hey, we build a relationship with them. And mm-hmm. so it's like, hey, what are these areas that affect you the most? What are something that – what do you care about? What moves you? And then once they tell us, then we say, okay, well, what do you want to do about it? How do we walk hand in hand to fix this? So it's not really about faith in action uh, fixing it. It's about working with the community, uh, teaching folks how to govern their own space, how to use their voice, access their power, et cetera, to be a part of the solution. Ah, it's beautiful. I know. Are you feeling people are receptive? So faith in action, which it's it's uh, it's it's new, right? New way. So I'm just honestly, I've been there since the end of October, and so you know, it's all still a learning experience for me. And it's different mm. community. What I've realized, what is different, is that um, you know, when I came home, I went straight into a place. I was blessed to be in an environment where. I was around formerly incarcerated people and people who worked strictly on that. So I was work open, you know, welcome with open arms and and there was a sensitivity there. There was a care there, et cetera, right? Because mm-hmm. that was the area of focus. That was the community. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like I was in, in a bubble, in a protective bubble, honestly. And uh-huh. so now I'm in this area where it's it's different. And so um, it's not necessarily, it's, uh, you know, that's the transparency to me. It's, it's definitely been, it's been different, but it's, it's been a growth experience. So Faith in Action, what their primary uh, area is, is trying to engage different worship er- entities. So whether that's, you know, the, the synagogues, the churches, the mosques, et cetera, it's mm-hmm. like, hey, you guys are in this community, you know, isn't this a part of our faith, putting our faith in action? So it's like almost organizing through a congregation. It's like how do you all, like, you know, be responsible in the communities that you're in and how do you be a part of the solution? How do you access that? You know, that's the part of the faith component. And so um, where that is awesome, but for me it's also engaging what, the congregation, the organization that I work with now is like engaging what they call the concrete. So that's people who just don't like myself, who don't necessarily uh, uh, relate to just one religion or et cetera. Like I, I have a beautiful relationship with God, but I'm not religious. And so it's also too finding out how to bring those two different communities together, how to work with them both, which is, um, is necessary, but it's it's um it's a different type of organizing. Absolutely. So um, the 
So are you finding, so it, it sounds like that's part of your process in this, is that right? Like where you're, the, the way you move in a spiritual way um, and engaging with those, with folks um, who are more religious, is that, is that what I'm understanding? Yeah, that's, yes, that's exactly <laughs> what, yes. Okay, yeah. no. <laughs> No, I I I love that. I that's mm-hmm. beautiful because there is a there is a separation. There there is that tension, right, with folks that ascribe to a particular religion and those don't. And being able to find that place where they uh they can work together, I think like you said, is a different kind of organizing and I really um I really commend you because that's a you know, again, that's one of those places where it's it where there's those, you know, the, the tensions can be, um, you're wanting to overcome those those tensions, those places where they keep us separate as opposed to finding those places where we can work together. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Wow, that's beautiful. Now, is that something, so, of course, I, I when when you decided to make your, um, your move from um, LSPC to, to faith in action, was that something that you were experiencing already? That somehow your uh, this part of yourself, this this you, the spiritual part of yourself, uh, wasn't really being engaged, or, or or not, or did that just that did that make itself known once uh, you had this opportunity with faith in action? No, so no that. Um... Honestly, Nube, that had nothing to do with it. It was just more so me just, you know, going to prison at a very different place in my life as a young woman and coming out as a an adult, right? Mm-hmm. And still, like, really, even at this very moment, trying to figure out where do I fit in, in the solution and how do I still do that, you know, with marching to the beat of my own drum. How do I do that with still feeling fulfilled? How do I, you know, uh, I want to still feel, I want to feel free. And Mm. so um, I'm still figuring that out. And so for me, it's just like trying to almost have experiences so that I can figure out because, you know, it's like when people say, well, what do you want to do? Well, I don't know. And people like when they say, "Well, what are your hobbies?" And I'm like, "I don't know. Like, I haven't had that much. I haven't experienced that much." So, I'm in in the process of just trying to experience things in my life so that I can feel whole as well in what I'm doing. And that was just kind of the driving force in saying, "Okay, maybe I need a, a change of scenery so I can start," you know. Um, being brave and seeing what's out there because I have seen, especially from prison, you can feel yourself sometimes just getting uh, complacent, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, I've been through that in several different times in my life. So I was, I tried to um, be aware and work against that. So. Yeah, keep it fresh. And I've that you know you have you exude that, and you always have. You have always been down for the, the adventure, at least since the time I've known you, which is I, I realize it's only less than two years. But I, 
I love that about you. You know, you're always like, yes, oh, there's a great opportunity that could help me to emerge and find out more about myself. I'm going to check that out. (laughs) I I just, I love that about you. And so Mm -hmm. speaking of that, there have been, I know that there are some, um, some other projects that you are doing outside of your work with Faith in Action. Did you, did you want to share any of that? Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Thank you for that. Of course. Um, So one of the things I'm super excited about is that uh, Road Trip Nation, which is the show that airs on PBS. And what this show is about, it's, um, it's about folks who get on an RV and they travel to certain places around in the country for about three weeks. And while they're on the road for the three weeks, they have all these different experiences. But one of the big uh, purposes of the uh, trip is to interview people within spaces of the interest that they have in. So, for example, there's been episodes like engineers, so therefore they, you know, drive around the country and they engineers that they have an interest in, they find out their story, you know, have an opportunity to ask them questions, et cetera. And so um, CZI, who um, the amazing Ali, who is formerly incarcerated, who works at who worked at CZI, uh, he ran one day into the the RV and was like, "Hey, this is I've seen this show. I used to watch this show in prison. Let's talk." And so, long behold, uh, Road Trip Nation is doing their first edition of formerly incarcerated folks. And I've got chosen to be able to take the trip, which is an honor. I'm the only female there. And Wow. Um, Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Super excited about it. So it's myself and two other super dope uh, gentlemen that are formerly incarcerated as well. And what we're going to do in June is get on that RV for three weeks and travel um, in the south to – interview different people who are what we are focused on uh, hearing from is folks who are formerly incarcerated and doing amazing things within the community who change their life around but also I have the area of interest in interviewing folks who are helping to change helping returning citizens so a big piece of that is I would like to connect with different um, different corporations, jobs that are encouraging folks to create a space for people who come in home for good livable wage jobs. Um, That's a huge, huge interest and component for me. And so, Mm. yeah, I'll be traveling and doing that um, and experiencing. (laughs) That is so exciting. Again, congratulations. And that's really, it's really great to hear that um uh you know this uh this tv show is is adding this component to it because we know the incredible richness and talent and um and intelligence and visionary um uh folks that are that are inside and and that are coming home as well they they're just there's just so much there, and to be able to continue to highlight that you being one of those people, of course. Um, so I'm, it's 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 
really, um, that's beautiful to see. And congratulations again. Thank you. Yeah, super excited. Thank yeah. Um, okay, so one of the last things that I want to ask you um, is that we are in Women's History Month or Women's Herstory Month. And I I don't know if that's something that you think about or, uh, you know, it's just, um, but did you, in the, it just in the context of Women's Herstory Month, um, as a as a black woman at this time, did you want to did you want to say anything about that or um, talk about anything that again um, anything else that's happening with you in the context of um, Women's First Story Month? Um, you know, for me, it's honestly it's you know, every day being a woman is a celebration. Every day, women need to, you know create that support with one another and that loving and et cetera, and what it just means to, you know, be a woman in America and not just that, but a woman of color. And so uh, for me, women's history is, uh, I guess the beauty in it is for me is there's a focus on it this month. So now you see it more on like social media, TV, and it's like, areas of focus of like highlighting folks and et cetera. But for me, I'm constantly on a daily, like that's a big piece of who I am is like sisterhood and women's empowerment. But it is, you know, nice to have this month, I guess, to highlight. And so you can see and put front and center women who are doing um, great things. But, you know, of course, if we really focused on that and wanted to highlight that, there wouldn't be, enough months and the days of the years to, you know, um, be able to really capture that. But it is nice to, you know, especially as a young black woman enter back into society, I it's very inspiring and empowering for me to see women, especially women who look like me, and not just that, just women in general, but doing amazing, great things. Because it allows me to see what's out there, what am I capable of. You know, I would look at, like, she is her, I am, um, she is me. And so, um, yeah, I just, you know, I'm all down for, you know, putting that extra, you know, celebration in it. But, you know, women should always be celebrated in my book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, just I feel exactly the <laughs> same way. That is just such a beautiful, beautiful answer. I, that is so that is just so London crowdy, which is why it's so wonderful to be able to ask you these kinds of questions. Um, you know, because you come from the heart, and it's the same. You know, I I I, I am with you all the way. The celebration of 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 sisterhood, of course, every day, and being able to um uh you know express our 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 daily lives as something to be celebrated um celebrated every day uh for sure but i'm with you i'm with you on the sure you want to put a little emphasis on that too so right for those that are kind of forgetting you know okay that's good but right you know, we are here every <laughs> every day doing amazing things and um and it's uh and it's also so hopeful and inspiring uh your answer also to, to to remember that we we are here inspiring each other and is every day 
all the time. We we have each other to look towards. And in the general sense, right, if we're going to talk about the changes that need uh, to be made, right, it, it it's about all of us looking to each other. It's about relying on the people, relying on seeing each other and uplifting each other, uh, seeing the potential in all of us, no matter where we come from, no matter what our starting place is. So, um you know, not to dilute because we are, yes, we are in the, the, the month of celebrating the woman. Um, but, uh, it's like you said, it's something that, um, there aren't enough days and months in the year to, 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 uh, <laughs> to celebrate all of our accomplishments, but to continue to look towards each other as well and then be inspired. Uh, how, I want to make sure always that you have the last word. Um, well, the last word here. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Um, there's always, I mean, we could be in conversation, of course. Um, uh, for for hours, and I I really do look forward to more. But I want to make sure that you get a chance to express anything that um, you would like for the listeners to hear, or um, yeah, just some more London crowdy wisdom. Wow, thank you, Nuve. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Let's see. It's, it's a touch. I guess what I would just say to the community is like. Uh, my prayers and my love just goes out to everyone, everyone right now, because, you know, we are in some tough times, and it just seems like it's just one thing after another, and that can take a lot out of you. And so I just encourage everyone to not only be gentle with yourself and loving with yourself and putting that extra um care and self-care and self-love, that extra attention, but also extend that to to thy neighbor as well. You know, people are hurting right now. People are acting out ways that are, you know, because of anger, grief, uh, you know, scarcity, fear, all types of things, right? And sometimes we just look at things at, at face value and it causes more division within our community. And so um, I just encourage everyone now is just that, that's just just that, is that that self-care, that self-love can go a long way with just, you know, paying attention to yourself and also extending that olive branch to your neighbor and to the community. Um, we're in this together. We can't run from one another. And so let's all be a part of solution. It's a personal choice that we can all take. London, thank you so much for that. Yeah, thank you for to... giving me the space to share that. Thank you. Of course, of course. All right. Well, we will get together again, I hope. And for sure, for sure. And I definitely want some updates, um, you know, because we want to know what else is is continuing to happen with Faith in Action and the beautiful programs that they are putting forth with the Place at the Table and Ceasefire. Um, Again, always very just hopeful, um, inspiring uh, and visionary work. We love it. And we'll uh, get together again. But until then, have a beautiful day.
You you too, Nube. Thank you so much. Blessings to you. Okay. To you too. Peace. Bye. All right. If you are just joining us, this is Prison Focus Radio here on KPOO San Francisco 89.5, and I am your host, Nube Brown. I was just in conversation with my friend London Crowdy, and we were talking about her new work with Faith in Action and the wonderful programs that she's involved with there. We are going to take a musical break and come back with an excerpt of a lecture with Fanya Davis speaking on restorative justice, a relational healing and radical practice.
I wish to open this evening by honoring the ancestors of this land, the Miwok, the Costanoa, acknowledging that this is an occupied land upon which we stand, acknowledging that this is a post-genocidal land which like with slavery, we have yet to tell the full truth about it. We have yet to make amends. And we have yet to make it right. As we can see with the bubbling up of truth and reconciliation type processes to transform historical harm in North America, in the last 10 years, this is beginning to change. And restorative justice is playing an important role in these truth and reconciliation processes to um, transform historical harm. Again, we honor the ancestors of this land, the Miwoks, the Costanoans. We ask that we might strive to walk upon this land in ways that honor them, in ways that honor their sense of the sacred. Restorative justice began only about 42 years ago, but it's really old. It's an ancient tradition. It's based on indigenous peacemaking, indigenous healing, indigenous ways of doing justice. Indeed, indigenous insights um, about our fundamental relatedness, interrelatedness, and about healing and peacemaking are the light. This is the light that will help us get through a perilous future. Before getting to restorative justice, do you mind if I talk a little bit? Uh-oh. This will be a review, um, so please bear with me. Um, what is restorative justice? Restorative justice is a worldview rooted in indigenous principles, and a, and a theory of justice that emphasizes bringing together everyone affected by harm or wrongdoing to address their needs and responsibilities and to heal the harm to the degree possible. So you can see that it's both a worldview and a theory of justice. Many people think of restorative justice as a conflict resolution method, but this is a very narrow view, in my, in my opinion, of restorative justice. It's actually a worldview that is based on indigenous principles, and especially the fundamental bedrock principle that affirms the bonds of our interrelatedness. And this is akin to uh, the, the African expression, Ubuntu. I am who I am because of my relationships with you, with everyone, with the earth. I am because we are, and we are because I am. The primacy of relationship in Lakesh in the Lakota Sioux, and Miyaki, Mitaki Oyasin in Lakota Sioux. This notion that we are all bound up in an inescapable web of mutuality, to paraphrase Dr. Martin Luther King. And when harm or wrongdoing happens to someone, it reverberates to, in, in, to immediate relationships, and it reverberates out in a broader sense 
uh, to, to relationships as well. Um, so restorative justice is a relational justice. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. And healing. Do I have the word healing? Yes. Bringing together anyone affected to address their needs and responsibilities and to heal the harm as much as possible. So restorative justice is a relational justice. It's a healing justice. So I think this is a really good exercise to help us understand the difference between prevailing justice and restorative justice. We can ask, what are the three questions that retributive or criminal justice asks? It asks what law or rule was broken, who broke it, and what punishment is deserved. So our whole criminal justice system can be summed up in these questions. What law is broken, who broke it, what punishment is deserved? Judgment, blame, and punishment. Restorative justice asks different questions. Who was harmed? What are the needs and responsibilities of all of those impacted? And how do all impacted come together to address needs and, and responsibilities and heal the harm to the degree possible? I mentioned uh, that restorative justice is about 43 years old and actually it goes back to ancient times. Uh, its roots are in indigenous ways of being. Let me talk a little bit about um, my organization, Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth. Um, we work to create a cultural shift uh, toward restorative responses to youthful wrongdoing rather than um, punitive responses. Uh, restorative Justice for Oakland Youth got started about 10 years ago. Um, and we, you know, when we first got started, or let me just tell you a little bit about my story and how, and my journey to restorative justice. Uh, as Bettina said, I grew up in the South, um, in Birmingham, Alabama. It was called that because of the frequency of bombings, uh, targeting people who were involved in the civil rights movement. I not only grew up in Birmingham, Birmingham, Alabama, but I lived on Dynamite Hill. That was the name of our neighborhood. It got that name because there were so many bombings. We had just moved our family into a neighborhood that had previously been all white, so we were pushing the color line. We were fortunate that our family's house was never hit, but homes all around us were hit. We went to a church just two blocks away, and we had interracial discussions at that church. Our church was bombed because white and black people were sitting and children, youth, were sitting and talking together. The house across the street from the church uh, belonged to a man by the name of attorney Arthur D. Shores, who worked with Thurgood Marshall when Thurgood Marshall was a litigator going before the Supreme Court. His home was bombed because he was an advocate, a legal advocate uh, for, for, for black civil rights at the time. And then, um, you know, of course, there's all the daily indignities of, of riding through town. Mommy, why can't I go to the amusement park? And why can't we go to, to movies? And, and why isn't there a library for us? And why can't we go to a zoo? Of course, the pervasive social messaging was that we were subhuman, that we were inferior, and we didn't deserve these things that our white counterparts did. 
my mother was a strong antidote and always telling us, don't ever let anybody tell you that you are less than they are. You, know? you can do anything that you uh, set your mind to. Uh, and then my friends, two good friends, were killed in the Birmingham Sunday School bombing. Um, Cynthia uh, Wesley and Carol Robertson. Cynthia and Carol. Cynthia lived just a few doors down from me, and Carol was a very close friend of the family's. <clears throat> um, so coming out of the South, I was imbued with this, 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 um, this desire, this great desire to do all that I could do and be all that I could be to change the world, to create a world without racism and oppression. And so I left the South and became involved in every possible movement that you can think of. The, uh, the, the Black Power Movement, the Black Panther Movement, the Women's Movement, the Anti-Apartheid Movement, the uh, Anti-War Movement, the uh, Economic Justice Movement, the Socialist Movement. Um, and I reached a point after fighting so many years against racism, against capitalism, against sexism, and as a civil rights trial, trial lawyer, fighting against racism in the courts, that I became burnt out. And I literally became sick. I became ill from the, the hyper-rational uh, and hyper-aggressive uh, um, and hyper-masculinist um, identity that I had to adopt to be successful as uh, a trial lawyer as well as an activist. And so, synchronistically, I was led to, well, first of all, I shut down my law office, and um, I was led to this PhD program in indigenous studies that Bettina mentioned a little bit earlier. And I found myself studying with healers in Africa, because I sort of intuitively knew that I needed more healing energies and more creative energies and more feminine energies to come back into balance. I was out of balance. So that's what I did. And then I came back to this country and I wanted to, um, after I got my PhD, I wanted to, to get a job doing this wonderful healing work about 10 or so years ago. But I couldn't find a job that would pay me well enough. So I ended up kicking and screaming going back into my law practice. But it's a good thing I did because as a lawyer, I was invited by lawyers to go to, uh, to a conference. Uh, and that's where I learned about restorative justice. And when I learned about this justice that, that cares more about broken lives and broken relationships than broken laws. This justice that seeks to heal harm rather than replicate harm. Um, this justice that seeks to create greater peace instead of deepening conflict. It was an epiphany for me because for the first time I felt that the lawyer, the healer, and the warrior could be one doing this work. So, the, one of the first things that I did, as you can imagine, with my long history of uh, racial justice activism, was Google restorative justice and race. <laughs> and you know, I found hundreds, if not thousands, of articles and books on restorative justice, but maybe two, maybe two articles on race and restorative justice. 
So for the first 30 odd years of the restorative justice movement, there was no racial justice consciousness at all. I knew that I had my work cut out for me. And so one of the first things that I did and that Arjoy did was to uh, change that. And I, should, I, say, I will say that in 2011, when I attended my first National Restorative Justice Conference, um, there were very few people of color there. And there were maybe two presentations on race and restorative justice, one that I was giving and one that an African-American dean, law school dean, was giving. And so he and I conspired at that conference to change that. And so for the next conference in 2013, we invited, guess who, as a keynote speaker? My sister, Angela Davis. Of course, she knows nothing about restorative justice. <laughs> but she knows everything about racial justice. Excuse me, I'm having some difficulties here. Um, well, that um, conference where Angela spoke and uh, Tim Wise spoke, um, the first time the restorative justice activists and scholars um, had a dialogue with racial justice activists and scholars. Uh, that was, that was a, a watershed moment that, that uh, really transformed the movement so that um, the most recent conference, which was in 2015, everything had changed. We had like more than 50% people of color. Almost all the presentations uh, explicitly or implicitly addressed uh, um, racial justice and social justice. And uh, our joy is credited with um, that major transformation uh, in the restorative justice movement. Um, before I get to the applications, um, I want to say that restorative justice invites a paradigm shift uh, because our current justice system is based on the Roman justice notion to each is due. And the idea is that if someone causes harm or commits a crime, it creates an imbalance in the scales of justice. And the only way we can rebalance the scale is to cause harm to the person who caused the original harm. So if I cause you to suffer, then there's going to be an imbalance. The only way to rebalance is if I am suffering, if I am caused to suffer. So basically our system harms people who harm people to show that harming people is wrong. Right? And this only replicates harm. We know from trauma research that harm people where they are not healed go on to harm other people. So our justice system sets into motion this endless cycle of harm. It replicates itself. It pervades all of our culture, and that's part of what we're seeing today. Restorative justice seeks to create a cycle of healing. It responds to the harm with healing. And we'll talk a little bit later about what that looks like. So because restorative justice is a worldview, it's not a program, it's not just a conflict resolution uh, program, it's not just a program that happens in the, in the criminal justice system, it is a worldview that can be applied in many different ways. 
We have programs in schools. We have programs in juvenile justice and, and, and adult uh, criminal justice. We have policing programs. We have community-based restorative justice programs. And restorative justice is also used to transform historical harm. I made that reference in our introduction earlier. You know about the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, right? So that was a restorative justice process used to uh, address uh, mass social violence in South Africa and to begin to heal from it. And of course, it did affect some healing, but primarily in psychosocial spheres. Uh, we see that uh, there's a lot of economic transformation that did not occur uh, through that process and was not expected to occur through that process. Uh, but um, it did uh, allow the transition from apartheid uh, to democracy to happen uh, with uh, less bloodshed than was expected. So a little bit about the data. There's a program in San Francisco, an in-custody program, um, where victims of crime come into inside prisons, inside locked facilities. They're not the matched victims of the inmates in the facilities, but they uh, may have uh, been victims of similar crimes. They make victim impact statements. They have heart-to-heart, -heart, face to face conversations with uh, inmates inside. And the, a study from Harvard shows that, um, that violent reoffending happens in only 20% of the cases of the persons who went through these programs. Recidivism generally is about 75 to 80 percent. So this is a major, uh, uh, major reduction in recidivism. In Oakland, we have a juvenile diversion program, a restorative diversion program, that has reduced recidivism to 11 percent. It's been going on for the last five years. And for youth in local uh, lockup facilities in, in Oakland, recidivism is normally about 75 percent. Um, so this is, again, a major uh, um, impact. Um, uh, restorative justice has a major impact in reducing recidivism in the Oakland program as well. And in New Zealand, where restorative justice is law since 1989 uh, for juvenile justice, uh, they have reduced recidivism to 30% from about 75 to 80 uh, to 30%. And other studies show that over 90% of victims who go through restorative justice programs where they actually confront the person who caused them harm and they have a, a, a very well-facilitated and well-prepared encounter. Um, studies show that 90% of the victims come out of those processes satisfied. And going down to the bottom, uh, this is really significant we find that persons who go through restorative processes, victims, show reduced fear because they get to meet a person um, and see that that person who hurt them is not a monster. All right, beautiful people. That is our show for the week. I want to thank you for joining me. And I do want to recommend finding and watching Meeting with the Killer. Um, Fania Davis does go on to say that there was success there. Um, and... We will see you next week. I hope to see you all at the rally on March 7th, Sunday, 12 to 2 p.m. at 111 Taylor Street in San Francisco. All right. Take care. And always, Ubuntu. <laughs>